Okay, let's see if we can open the show up with this confluence of noise in the room. Basil snoring away over there. <clears throat> Here we go. Welcome to episode 108 of the Juice Box Podcast. This episode called Super Stephanie is sponsored by Dexcom and Omnipod. Now you can learn more about Dexcom at dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. And you can learn more about Omnipod at myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. Now let's talk about the episode. Super Stephanie. I think you're really going to love this episode because Stephanie was diagnosed in her 50s, but most of the conversation sort of revolves around more of the emotion of type 1 diabetes, living with it, and and being diagnosed. So if you're ever looking at your children or a loved one and wondering, you know, what it feels like, this is a great opportunity to hear more about what it's like to be diagnosed with type 1, have it, the emotional parts of it, from a from a fully formed, thoughtful adult. And so maybe this will give you a little insight. I know it did for me. Stephanie is fantastic, and I really want to thank her for coming on. Nothing you hear on the Juice Box Podcast, let me remind you, nothing at all should be considered advice, medical or otherwise, and you should always consult a physician before making changes to your medical plan. Okay, let's get to Stephanie. She's got a lot to say. My name is Stephanie Icavelli, and how I'd like to start off this conversation at a high level is by saying um, I'm one tough person who gets up every day and gets in the ring and works hard to manage my type 1 diabetes. And it's not easy. It's a complex, challenging disease. And by having this conversation, what I hope to do is perhaps inspire others that are also living with type 1 diabetes. If there's anything that I can say or do that would resonate with anybody, then I think that would be fabulous. Cool. Well, so let's start off with some simple stuff. So you are you were diagnosed later in life, is that correct? That's right. So I am 55 years old, and I am coming up on my third year anniversary of living with type 1 diabetes. It was about this time last year that I really started to become, or not last year, but three years ago, that I started to become quite ill. And what we know now, that was um, diabetes announcing its presence to us. And I say us because it's not just me. I'm the primary person that deals with it, but I think this thing about diabetes or type 1 diabetes especially is it affects the whole family ecosystem. And that was something that I didn't really realize until I got out of the hospital and I looked at how much it's it's impacted my husband, my mother, my brother, my sister, like my whole extended family is involved in it somehow. And that's just their involvement, whether they're helping you or concerned for you or, or that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And how much involvement does your husband have? Like uh, that's interesting because you've now I happen to know you celebrated your 25th wedding anniversary last night. Mm-hmm. So yes, yep, congratulations. And so you're you're married a good long time. And right. how, how is that different? You know, having something chronic introduced 25 years into a marriage. Was your husband like? What was his response? And and how is he involved or not involved? And why? My husband is my strongest ally, and he's been extremely involved, not so much from a medical aspect. I wouldn't say that's really his thing. He did go to all the education classes with me. I think he understands a little bit about carbs, but that still hasn't sunk in. Um, But he's my strongest believer in that he doesn't really see there's not anything I can't do now that I live with type 1 diabetes. If I want to go out and ride my bike 40 miles, they're with me. If I want to go horseback riding with a friend, he's like, why not? I like to travel a lot, and he likes to travel. So um, since I've been diabetic, I've logged like 20 business trips to Toronto and a couple to Florida, four to New York City, California, Ohio, Atlanta, so all through North America. And then he and I have gone to Bermuda, France, Costa Rica, 
And we just went to Mexico last week wow. to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. How has traveling changed with diabetes? Well, it's, it's changed a lot because one of the biggest things I've learned about diabetes is you can't control everything. And when I came out of the hospital, they talked to me about controlling my numbers. It's taken me a while to realize and change my mindset. So I'm trying to shift to a mindset of I manage it but I can't always control it. And, and that's taken some of the pressure off of me, quite honestly. Um, but there's all sorts of things that have happened when I travel. Um, from I was on a business trip in Toronto, and an overzealous housekeeping staff took my insulin out of the refrigerator, and I had to go track that down. I had another incident in France. And what I've learned from that is to always have like plan A, B, and C and think about safety first mm -hmm. and what do I need? What do I have to think through? So you asked me how it's changed traveling. Like I will, I will always have to check a bag from now on because I do take a lot of backup supplies and, and I try to be very planful. But at the same time, I think it's really helped my psyche and it's helped my mindset because I know that I can do it. I just have to get over. It's not always going to be perfect. When you travel, there's always bumps in the road anyway. Yeah. And there might be a couple of additional bumps or things I have to, to manage through. And that's where my husband comes in. My husband is an engineer, so he's very logical. He can very, be very calm. So his involvement has been mostly in helping me understand the technology and work my equipment. I'm a big fan of diabetes technology. I wear CGM and use a pump. And he helps me from that perspective. He helps me calibrate things. He helps me understand how a sensor works. He helps me understand that the sensor on the CGM is going to have a tolerance limit, so it's not always going to be perfect. Um, but I think the biggest thing he's done is he's helped me just get to a more even keel with it. Uh, and I guess just in general, having someone there to, I mean, for the lack of a better term, to cheerlead for you even at times is, is valuable. Just somebody to remind you that, you know, you can do it and keep trying and I'm here if you need me. That that kind of support is, is huge. It, it might sound, I guess, Pollyanna to somebody, but it, it really isn't. And, and I, I wondered when you said that he explains the technology. Actually, I want to go back a little bit. So you said that, like, he doesn't completely grasp the carb counting yet. But that when you think, you know, I want to go do something, he's the first one to tell you you can. Now, is right. is his yes, you can based in we can like I understand diabetes and I know you, there's a way to make this work. Or is it just is it just blind optimism? Is he somewhere in the middle? Because, you know, that riding a bike for 40 miles takes preparation. And, right. and does he know that or is he just the guy that's behind you and saying, I believe you can do that preparation? I would say probably middle of the road, he understands that. Like he sees what I go through to pack for a trip and he knows that if I'm going out walking or riding my bike, always make sure I have my phone. We set up um, like a tracking system on my phone so he always knows where I am. And we, he always makes sure that I have like sugar and water and everything with me mm -hmm. so he's thoughtful that way. And that's what we've learned together and that's what I mean by you. You have to think and prepare and be ready, but we work through that together versus I think if I didn't have him in my life, I still might be on my sofa mourning the fact that I have diabetes right. no, I know, get that. and a little bit frightened to get off the sofa. No, I get, it's a huge thing, you know, especially I would imagine later in life, you, you have, I, I mean, I'm guessing, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'm going to ask you, in your 50s, you didn't think something like this was going to, like, I mean, I'm 45 and if I get sick, like, you know, in the back of my mind, my expectation is, gosh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but like, you know, if, if I get sick towards the end of my life, I figure I'm getting cancer. You, you know exactly. what I mean? Right, right. Like, I don't think I'm going to get this, this chronic illness that I'm going to have to manage every day. Like it's, it's almost like, gosh, I've gotten up every day for 52 years and nothing like this has gone wrong. I, I'm on a streak, right? Right? I, I, it, it can't happen now, but then it does. And, and how hard did it, did your life experience help you or did it hit you just as hard as you think it would have at any point in your life? 
Oh, gosh, that's such a loaded question with a lot of things I want to say. And, and that's one reason why I wanted to do this interview cool. was to share my experience because it did hit me hard at 52, and it still has the ability to, like, knock the wind out of me when I think about it too hard. And I think my diabetes presented classically. I was in DKA when... I was admitted to the hospital because we didn't, we knew nothing about diabetes. Yeah, no reason to. And either the only thing I knew when I was young and I was a Girl Scout, the man down the street bought, bought six boxes of peanut butter cookies from me. And his wife brought them back and said, he can't have these, he's diabetic. And what my mother said to me is he can't eat sugar. And that's all we knew about diabetes. So we were on a crash course. When it started to manifest and I started to get the classic symptoms and then some, I had no idea. And we even went to urgent care because my heart hurt so badly. So they tested my heart, but the urgent care doctor didn't string all the symptoms together. Had she done a simple um, finger stick, we would have been a couple of weeks ahead of it and not so far behind when it became really a dire situation. But no one expects someone your age to have type. Exactly. And, and they just couldn't fit it all together. And you asked about, has it been difficult? I don't know if it's ever not difficult for anybody. It's diabetes has definitely been an unwelcome guest that Won't has leave. come to stay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wish it would leave, yeah. but... Um, you know, I, I think I, I'm working hard now, Scott, on my mindset and really trying to coexist more peacefully with it. I will admit I've probably spent the past three years really rumbling with it and fighting with it. And I used to ride horses growing up, and there's a couple of times I had fallen off my horse and I was laying face down in the arena in the dirt. And diabetes has done that to me a few times where it's just bounced me off, it's kicked me, it stomped me, and, and I'm laying face down in the arena going, what in the world? And it feels like, um, it, does it feel like I maybe I should just lay here and not get up? It does. And, and I have great admiration. I mean, for those of us that live with it, you have, we don't have a choice. So it's 24-7, 365 days a year that we have to coexist with diabetes. I'm trying to to work on that mindset and not fight with it so much, but just say, okay, it's here. I didn't ask for it to come in. And yes, I thought maybe I would get cancer or have heart issues or something, but I never in a million years thought diabetes. Um, But how can I just coexist more peacefully with it? Because it did kind of come into our lives like a full force gale. And, and knock the wind out of all of us. And, and that's why earlier I said, like, the whole family ecosystem. I mean, it, it just sent ripple effects through my family because nobody ever thought this would happen. You're making me think about, um, so I, I've been, a, just for your edification, I guess, I've been a stay-at-home dad for just about 17 years. Mm-hmm. A- and when, you know, when I initially made that decision, my wife and I made that decision together, you know, I was in my early 30s. And I thought, okay, you know, I'll do this for a while. And then the kids will go to school The you know, the, we'll have one, maybe we'll have another one. I don't know how many, um, but I never really thought about the, the length of it. And then when I recognized that, you know, these, the children, like, you know, my son didn't just need to be kept alive. He needed to, he needed so much more, you, you know, and, and that my wife would have sort of naturally done those things had, had our roles been, you know, more I guess, you know, reversed into a a classic way, she would have maybe known better what to do. And I needed to figure out what those things were. And so I, I figured them out. And I I figured out, you know, this is what my wife would do here. And I could see how it was benefiting my kid. And then I got the whole thing rolling. And then I thought, wow, this is never going to end. This is Mm -hmm. what this is what I do. Now I get up in the morning, and I help another person grow into an adult. And I do the laundry and wash the dishes and go grocery shopping and make sure the rug doesn't get dirty. And then, mm-hmm. and then I get up and I do it again tomorrow. And this may never end in my, it, it, you know, in my conscious future. Like, like it may just keep going and going and going. I found that initially um, overwhelming in a bad way. 
like like I thought, wow, like I could see how people get that feeling like, wow, this is this is what I've done. How huh? like this is going to be me. You know, I'm going to this is going to be my life. And then I don't know, at some point I just recognized that there was nothing wrong with that and that this mm-hmm. this was my life and and that if I, you know, if I wanted to do it um, if I wanted to give it the respect it deserved and my kids the respect it deserved, I couldn't sit around all day thinking, my God, I got to vacuum the rug again tomorrow. Like I needed to almost be excited to vacuum the rug tomorrow. I don't, because why? Because it makes a clean house for my son to grow up and because maybe it'll give him the expectation that he should keep his house clean when he gets older. And, and that's a very basic rudimentary, you know, example, but, but just finding love in what I was doing and finding, you know, value in it went a long way towards me becoming a much better parent. And I don't know that this is much different than that. I think at some point you have to, you have to say like, this is not what I expected it to be, but how am I going to love it every day? You know, it's hard to, hard to imagine, I guess. That's a really great analogy. And by the way, can you come to my house and clean my rug? No, because my wife will yell at me (laughs) because there's a lot of stuff here I don't do. And she'll start pointing it out if I go help you. But I would love to in a bigger (laughs) sense. (laughs) But what you talk about is so true is what I realize and I still have to work on, I would say almost minute by minute, is that having diabetes isn't the end of my story. And that it's up to me to create my great diabetes life. I don't like the situation. I don't have to like that I have diabetes, but I have to like myself living with it. And that's where my focus is. So, for example, I think, and I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I, I don't know where I'm totally going with it. But diabetes is so numbers-oriented, and it's very judgmental. So a few weeks ago, I woke up one Saturday morning, and my blood sugar was 185. And so my first thought was, bad Stephanie, what the heck did you eat, even though it's first thing in the morning, instead of saying, okay, you're super Stephanie, and you're doing a great job, and you're rocking diabetes, I go right to this negative label of you're bad, your number's bad, and you must have done something wrong. And and I'm really focused on trying to take the shame out of it and yeah. take the judgment out of it and just say, okay, Super Stephanie, obviously for you to wake up and be at 185, you're not getting enough insulin for some reason. So let's look at it and let's review what's going on. I've heard all sorts. I've heard a story of a young girl who feels so pressured by her number. She hates her A1C because she feels like she's going to let her parents down. So she panics every time. You know, she goes to get her lab test, and, and she doesn't ever want to know her A1C number. Where do you think that and, feeling comes from, though? Because, do you know what I mean? Like, we're, uh, as a society, we're so geared to blame other people, generally speaking. But then in this one situation, in, in a spot where, I mean, you use an example, like I woke up in the morning, any number of things, you could have a small cold, your liver could have dumped extra glucose, uh, right. you know, you're, you're wearing a pump, maybe your infusion set was getting old. Like, there's so many things that you know intellectually have nothing to do with you, but your mind jumped right to that. But in so many other ways, we all are like, it's almost a human response to, to not want to blame ourselves. Like, why do you think the focus shifts so drastically with the diabetes? You know, if you have an answer for that, I'll take it. That's why I asked I mean, you, I, even, I don't know. <laughs> I even felt it so when I was hospitalized and because it was more unusual, they kept asking me if I had been under like extreme stress, which yes, I had. We had had some really, we had had some deaths in our immediate family that were very challenging. So my first thought was the reason I got diabetes was because I couldn't handle stress because of those questions that the doctors were asking oh, me. Oh, I see. And I really, you know, that's not true. There's really no known reason about what sets off the autoimmune attack. But I, I'm just really fascinated by this whole thing about how I phrase it is, I am not my number. So I'm kind of rumbling with myself on that is I am more than my number. I have this great life and I have this great diabetes life, but there's the day-to-day, like you talked about cleaning the rug, there's the day-to-day of my blood sugar's higher than I want it to be. It's lower than I want it to be. It's bouncing all around. And I can be very judgmental about that number. 
I went to a diabetes training camp this summer, and I was eating dinner with this woman who has lived successfully with diabetes for over 36 years. And all of a sudden, she goes, oh, my gosh, and she shows me her CGM, and her, her blood sugar was 265. And she went down that whole shame spiral, too. But if I think about it, Scott, if I took 40 years times, Gary Shiner says we make like 50 to 60 diabetes decisions a day. I can't even do the math in my head. That's got to be like over 500,000 diabetes decisions that woman had made in her diabetes life. Yes. And she still, after 500,000 really good how many decisions because she's riding her bike, she looks great, she's healthy, she gets one number where all of a sudden she doesn't give herself credit for all those great decisions she has made to live with the disease for 40 years. That's what I don't get. And, that, and that's really where I'd like, that's where my focus is on why is it such a, from my perspective, it seems to be a very shamed-based disease. Yeah, and I, and I wonder. I guess that. you wonder how much of that is tied to old ideas. Like even when you 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 said earlier, you know, I was little. I sold Girl Scout cookies to somebody who eventually told me that they could. You know, the wife said he can't have these because he can't eat sugar. He's di- he has diabetes, and so maybe it's just an old timey feeling that's left over, and mm-hmm. and and kind of built into. You know that sort of thing because I can tell you right now that my daughter doesn't think she can't have sugar because she's nobody. She's never heard that before, like in like mm-hmm. in her life. I mean, she maybe people from the outside would say to her, "Can you eat that?" But we just instilled into her at an early age that the answer to that was, "Oh, you know, I see that you don't understand diabetes, but yes, I can eat anything." And that's the end of the conversation. Like, I wonder how much of that could generationally generationally just be weeded out at some point. But I guess. I guess it would be difficult because there's going to be so much bad information in the world that it is going to keep generating. Um, and I guess too, because it's, it's inside of you, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's something that emanates from inside of your body. So it feels very, I would imagine it feels very, you understand too. I, I don't have diabetes. My daughter does. So right. um, yeah, it's, so it's, it's a very, I, I'm guessing something that feels connected to you, even though it's, you know, I guess that intellectually you probably shouldn't think of it that way, but Emotionally, I can understand it being like that, that it's, um, you know, if something happens, I even my wife will talk about like, she wonders what, you know, because there's um, autoimmune issues on my wife's side of the family, I think she feels guilty, which is, of course, ludicrous. You you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, that's like saying you feel guilty that your son is, you know, you have a kid and he's 5'5", and you have a grandfather who's 5'5", and you're guilty that your son is only 5'5". Like, that's, that's an odd feeling, like an odd statement. Like, you shouldn't, I mean... You could generally look and say, okay, you know, genetically, this probably comes from my bloodline, but that doesn't make you at fault. It's a, it's a very weird, uh, it's a very weird way of talking about things in, in general. And, and, but you're obviously not the only one you hear people talk about this stuff, you know, constantly, um, I guess, and just telling them that, you, you know, you shouldn't think of it that way, or please don't, obviously it doesn't help anything. Um, so it's. We're going to need yeah, to have a breakthrough tough. in the next half an hour here, Stephanie, <laughs> yeah, for like, this to be valuable. This so really bear down and figure this out, okay? <laughs> well, I was doing a, a, a volunteer event around diabetes, and I was working with a young boy, and it was time for his finger prick, and his blood sugar was 300. So the mom hit the panic button, and out of her mouth comes, what in the world did you eat? So, and, and so, so is that a defense mechanism for her? Do you think? Do you think she's thinking? Oh, I'm not. I don't curse on this podcast. <laughs> well, do you think she's? Think, yeah, I think she's, she's thinking. thinking what did I mess up? And then it's a very human thing to just put it onto somebody else, even if it is your kid, and that's really crappy to do. But, but do you think that's just an inclination? It's like, hey, what did you do? Because I don't want this to be me. Because I can't, I can't live with the idea that I did this to you. I think it's. You're right. It's human nature. So for me. It's easier to say, I screwed up, I didn't eat something right, that's why my blood sugar is 185, versus telling my husband, you know, I'm really scared, my blood sugar is at 185, I'm not quite sure what's going on. It's, it's harder to say, I feel sad that I have this disease, you know, whatever those emotions are, and half the time I'm, they're all confused and mixed up anyway, so I'm not even aware of them, but it's, it's 
easier to show him my meter and say, oh, my God, you know, I must have done something wrong than to say, here's this number, and you know what? It's scaring me because I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to get it back under control, which I know that's not true, or I'm not going to be able to manage it, not even control it, but manage that 185 number down back to where I want it to be. It's it's all those out-of-control thoughts and feelings that just go flying around, and it's all... It's, for me, it's based upon that number. Even when I go to the endocrinologist, it's what's your A1C? You know, we're always looking at numbers versus the holistic picture of, of the person and my health and, and what's wrapped up in that number. So you're making me think this. I remember feeling like that when my daughter was early on and you know A1Cs were high and blood sugars were weird and out of control and... I, I didn't seem to know what to do, and they bounce all over the place. And I felt more like that. I felt guilty and um, like I didn't know what I was doing, and and not knowing what I was doing made me feel like it was something that was beating me, or you know, like that kind of feeling. But now today, I can honestly tell you that no matter what her blood sugar is, I instantly know how to make it go where I want it to or stay where it is. And that's through a ton of experience and time and, you know, uh, you know, trial and error and all that other stuff. But now that I feel that way, those numbers don't make me feel the way they did when I first started. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, so I, I guess you get back to maybe the idea is to, as quickly as possible, educate people to the point where they see a number and they go, oh, 185, I know what to do to make that go back where I want it to go. Or, or, geez, I'm 60. You know, how do I get back to 90 without going to 250? Like, like that sort of thing. You, you, you know what I mean? I wonder if that's it. I wonder if the knowledge ends up being, gosh, maybe the entirety of life is just trite sayings. Um, <laughs> maybe knowledge is power, right? Like, like, maybe it really is. And maybe that knowledge keeps you from feeling out of control and, and feeling like something else is in control of your body and not you. Um, or at least helps a little bit because it's still that blood sugar is still going to get to 185 at some point, you know, or 200 or 300 or wherever it's going to end up one day. Um, but, but I don't know. Do you think that like, so what do you do to manage? Like, like, let's, let's talk about that for a second. When you see that 185, how, where do you want it to go to and how quickly can you get it there? So I feel my best when I'm between like 100 and 130. Mm-hmm. So if it's around 185-ish, I know if I can go take a 15 or 20 minute walk, it will come down. How long? What's a, how long does a walk take to get your blood sugar down 50 points? Um, you know, anywhere from 20 minutes to 20 to 30 minutes. Because, and it's, it's interesting, I've tried running and running actually makes my blood sugar go up. Endorphins. Because it's harder on my body. But if I just go for a walk, I think everything calms down but I'm still burning through that glucose and it's not stressing my body. So I've become quite an avid walker and I think it's, it's the mindset. You also talked about different scenarios and you were making me think about our diabetes education system. And I am in corporate America. I'm a learning and development professional. Mm-hmm. So you made me think about just how do we teach you about diabetes? And I will tell you, um, when I was in the hospital, they scared the you-know-what out of us because we get all the pamphlets. They talk about the dangers of hypoglycemia, the complications. But how wonderful would it be if somebody sat with me, and I know some of it's trial and error, but just said, here's a scenario. Your blood sugar's at 60. What are you going to do? And then you learn those steps. So your blood sugar's at 185. What are some things you can do? We don't do, like, use case scenarios or anything. It's all read this book that's going to tell you how horrible the disease is and what the complications are, and you're going to go home on insulin and have a nice life. Yeah. (laughs) You'll figure it out eventually. Well, I have to tell you, on this podcast, that's how we talk about things. That's how we we discuss, um, you know, give me an example. Your blood sugar's here, and you wanted it to go here, but this didn't happen. What did you try? And, you know, or we'll talk through, you know, large bolus things. Like my daughter had a giant bolus cereal the other day. And I can tell you that in the past, before I understood how insulin worked in her body and how to use the timing of it, 
a bowl of cereal like that would have made her blood sugar 400. It would have stayed like that for hours. I would have fought and fought and fought with it. And the other day, I don't think she went over 110, you know. So, and that was just knowing how to do it. And, so and what did you do when she had that big bowl of cereal? Okay. So, first of all, you want to start at a reasonable blood sugar, right? So, and if you can't, like, let's say your blood sugar is, in my mind, uh, if she's going to eat a bowl of cereal like that, I would love her blood sugar to already be, you know, 90. Uh, but let's say it's not. Let's say she comes down out of, out of bed one day. It's, oh my gosh, Stephanie. I am having something delivered to my house. Stop the recording. You may be wondering how I timed someone coming to my house exactly halfway through the episode so that I could put an ad in. And let me just tell you this, it was completely by mistake. Just thumb luck. So let's start today with Dexcom. Let's do it right here. Let's do it right now. So listen, as most of you may know, my daughter Arden uses the Dexcom G5 Mobile Continuous Glucose Monitoring System. That, but that just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? That tracks her glucose levels throughout the day and night, notifying her of highs and lows so she can take action. But that's not all it does. It isn't. That's not all. Dexcom also has a share feature, so Arden can have up to five loved ones like her mom and I track her numbers in real time. No matter where Arden is or what she's doing, she always has us as a backup. Now, if that kind of peace of mind seems like something that you'd like to know more about, I think you should go to www.dexcom.com forward slash juice box or click on the link in your show notes. Please keep in mind, this is CGM based treatment and it requires finger sticks for calibration. May result in hypoglycemia if calibration not performed or symptoms expectations do not match CGM readings. You can always contact Dexcom toll free at 877-339-2664 for detailed indications for use and safety information. It's Dexcom, D-E-X-C-O-M dot com forward slash juice box. Okay, now let's get right to Omnipod. Let us not wait even a second. Look out your window. What do you see? You see green grass. You see leaves on the trees. Roll your window down. Stick your fingers out. What do you feel? Warm air. Why? Spring is here. Summer's on the way. Breaks from school are coming up. A lot of you wait until this time of year to make decisions about changing things in your diabetes uh, plan. I get that. You want to have some free time to think about it, to really wrap your brain around things. But you got to get going right now. I mean, if that's been your plan, let's wait till the summer till we try an insulin pump. Let's wait till the summer till we switch our insulin pumps. Now's the time to act. You need to go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box to get started today. Here's what Omnipod's going to do. They're going to take your name. They're going to take your address. Then they're going to send you out your free, free, free. How much does it cost? Nothing. No obligation demo pod. Here's what you're getting. You're getting a demonstration pod that you can stick on to yourself or to your child, figure out where you like it, see how it's going to work for you, see if it's what I've been talking about. And trust me, it is. But you're going to get an Omnipod. It's a demo. You try it out for yourself. Bang. You decide, I like this thing. Great. Even if I don't like it, does it matter? No, because there's no obligation and it's free. But let's say you do like it because I think you're going to. The next thing you know, you're talking to Omnipod and they're getting you real insulin pumps to start using. And you've got the summer to really figure it out. And you know what? Once you get comfortable and you're rolling, you're going to realize, oh my gosh, I'm swimming with my insulin pump on. I'm taking a bath with my insulin pump on. I'm playing sports. I mean, you know, if you're an adult, you do adult things, you're doing adult things with your insulin pump on. Never disconnected from your insulin, which is the way it needs to be. I don't like disconnecting to do anything. I like having a nice, steady supply of insulin. You want to go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box to get started today. I'm telling you right now, it's the greatest thing ever. You will not be disappointed. Get going right now. There's also links in your show notes you can make click click on. You are just one click away from untethered tubeless insulin pumping. Okay, I'm back. Okay, so... How did I do a bowl of cereal or, or anything like that, really? But a bowl of cereal was interesting. So if, say, she came down out of bed, I don't know, where her blood sugar was 140, and she just said, I want to have a bowl of cereal right now. And that's not something we normally do, but okay, I'm in a, I'm in a great mood, and we're going we're gonna, to do this. I would have to say I would think for a second, how long has her insulin pump been on? If we were on the third day of an infusion set, of an infusion, I would probably think, uh, this is not going to be easy. First day, second day, I probably think it'd be a little easier. Um, but okay. I would stop and think, the last time she ate something with this many carbs in it, it took this much insulin. 
I don't really think of it as how many carbs are in there. Like I could take a, a cup measuring cup and measure it, but she wants to dump the cereal into a bowl. You know what I mean? Like she's not looking to measure it out. I can see on her face that she gets bummed out when we measure out food. So I let her dump it in the bowl and I eyeballed it the best I could and thought this is probably two cups. That's probably on the box 70 or 80 carbs, you know, which is a lot. She's going to put milk into it. That's probably another 20 carbs. And now I'm looking at 100 carbs. This is crazy, right? But it's going to take 10 units of insulin. I just think it will. And so I just get it all going and boom, bolus. And I say to her, look, you're 140, 10 car, you know, this giant bowl of stuff, you're going to have to pre-bolus. It's the one thing we can't, we can't negotiate that. There has to be a pre-bolus. So put that much insulin in and wait. And then when you see on her Dexcom CGM, when you see that she's going down, then she starts to eat. And at that point, whether I'm right or wrong about this amount of insulin, here's what I know for sure. This is enough insulin to bring down the blood sugar of a, a reasonably sized horse. Okay, so <laughs> I, for my daughter, okay? So I've now put in enough insulin. I'm going to get her blood sugar running in the right direction. And the most important thing in my mind is that the blood sugar is pulling the sugar out of her blood while the cereal is trying to force it in. That Those two things are happening simultaneously so that it's not... Wow, big drop from the insulin, and then, oh my gosh, here comes the shooting up of the food. We're shooting up from the food, now we're trying to pull the insulin down. So I want this kind of tug of war between the insulin and the food to happen at the same time. That's the biggest the biggest thing. Um, you over-bolus a little bit for the extra, you know, she's 140, I wish she was 90, so there's insulin in there for that. And then from there, you lean on the CGM. And if a half an hour, and it sounds crazy to somebody, but a half an hour or 40 minutes after this bolus... If her blood sugar starts going back up again, I did something wrong. It's either mistimed or it wasn't, or it's miscalculated. So I'm not scared to address those up arrows or those diagonal up arrows with a little more insulin because I have the CGM and I can see if it heads back down and we can catch it again, you know, in the future if we need to. I would much rather see her eat something like that and need to drink four ounces of juice in two hours than to spend the next five hours, you know, grappling with a, a blood sugar, it's 350. Right. And so it's, to me, it's more about, it's about the timing of the insulin, the timing and the amount. I think that's most of, I think most of diabetes management is understanding the timing and the, and the amount of the insulin that you need. It's how the insulin works. Um, and it's much easier to do with a glucose monitor than it is without it. Uh, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see how people manage their diabetes without a glucose monitor. Well, I think it's doable, and I also think that I think there are data points that exist in your life with diabetes when you don't have a glucose monitor that you're unaware of, and that sometimes that's not bad. And I, I kind of practice that idea, you know, in those two-hour warm-up periods for the Dexcom. Um, you know, it, that idea of like what I've come to realize is that if you wear that Dexcom glucose monitor for long enough you sort of know what your blood sugar is without looking at it sometimes. You, you know, like if I, I saw Arden's blood sugar after lunch today go to 150, but I knew I gave her a big bolus, but I wasn't able to give it to her all because she was at school and she was a little lower when I had to give it to her. So I had to give her the bolus at 1120, but she wasn't going to get to eat until 1140. And I still needed to give her these 10 units but I couldn't give them all to her at once as I would have done at home at home with a 125 blood sugar. I would have said, look, here's the whole 10 units and we'll just make sure you eat at the right time. But at school, she's negotiating through her locker and the hallway. I don't want her to have all that insulin going if something could happen to derail her getting to the food on time. So what I did was right. I, I gave her the 10 units and I extended the bolus out. So I gave her a 50% basal rate increase for an hour and a half just because there's a lot of sugar. She had a banana today. There's bread, Nutella. There's a chip in there and a cookie and grapes. And there's a lot of stuff in her, in her, a lot of different kinds of carbs. So I upped her basal rate by 50% for an hour and a half, just blindly. And then I gave her the 10 units, but I did an extended bolus. And I gave her 10% up front. So as soon as we did it at 1020, she got a unit. But I had the other nine units go in over a half an hour. 
so that she's basically getting this uh, this protracted kind of super bolus for the, you know for the next 30 minutes almost like a giant basal rate and I knew it wasn't going to quite work. Like, I knew it was going to work in the long run, but it wasn't going to work up front. Her blood sugar was going to be a little higher initially than I wanted it to. So it did. It went from the 126 where she was, and about a half an hour later, she was 155, but coming all, already coming back down. Now, in any other normal situation, I would have corrected the 155 and caught it later if it got low but i knew it was going to drift down because of the extended bowl so right now she's 128 i would still in a normal situation correct that but she's going to a friend's house after school today and she's leaving right from school and not coming here first so because of that like sort of life thing that's happening i'm letting her blood sugar drift down slowly this afternoon whereas normally i would just smack it down and, mm-hmm. then, and then deal with it later um i just think that once you can see that stuff on the CGM enough times that when you don't have the CGM, because you've experienced it enough, you can sort of still imagine it. I know that it's not safe, like in the way people think of safe nowadays. But but if, you know, I saw it the other night, we were putting on a new CGM. I knew her blood sugar was like 110 when she got in bed. And I thought, okay, this is the time of night her blood sugar usually falls. She's going to be 90 in about 45 minutes. And if I don't do something in two hours, she could go down to 60. So how about if I just test her in an hour? And I tested in an hour and she was 95. And I thought it was happening a little slower than I thought. So I came back a half hour later and sure enough, she was like 70. And I thought, okay, I bet you this is like a diagonal down situation if I could see the CGM. And so I just handled it the way I would have handled it with the glucose monitor and it all worked out fine. Like eventually you have so many experiences, you can just draw on them, like really simply, I, I, I find. Um, yeah, I agree. Can you, uh, I think like taking that thought process, so for me it's really teaching the thought process and it's noting what works, what doesn't work, and we're all so different mm-hmm. that what works for Arden might not work for me, but it's really, it's confidence and it's, for me, it was having faith that the insulin would even work. So you first have to trust that the insulin will work and that your equipment works. And and then it's it's kind of like trial and error, too. Yeah, oh, of course. Oh, you're going to do so many things that don't go the way you want them to. But that that's, to me, and I just talked about this on another episode, but that, that to me is, that's where the real joy is. You know, you do something and it doesn't work, and you think, okay, well, next time I should probably up this insulin or down or, or less or change the pre-bolus time or something like, you know, honestly, if you wait for diabetes to happen to you, then you're always going to be sort of just catching up. And then everything that happens to you is not real actionable. It's not really worth remembering. But if you sort of attack the diabetes, then the response you get back is, is something you can count on next time. Like I did this in this situation and this happened. I wish that this would have happened. So next time I'll add a little bit of insulin or I'll subtract a little bit of insulin. Like I, I love getting that, that feedback back, the trial and error back because eventually it's, it just, it becomes less error. I don't, and then there's so many things like you talked about, are you on the third day of a pump in set? So the insulin's not working, um, at the same level as it was on day one of an inset. So, I mean, it takes experience to, to learn those, those things. And it's, it's kind of like this thought process you have to go through. And so for me, it goes back to, oh, bad Stephanie, what, do you, what did you eat to be at 185? It's more like, no, calm down. It's you're on your third day of your inset. So it's not going to be working as well. So maybe it's, you want to change it. Or maybe I ate something that had more fat in it. So my blood sugar stayed up, or I've noticed for myself when I eat a lot of protein, mm-hmm. it raises my blood sugar and keeps it up. And then, and so I've started to look at, there. there's research out there now about do we need to start bolusing for protein? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the um, medical community has really landed on anything, but I know if I'm going to eat a lot of protein, I need more insulin. So it's learning those things, and that's what I don't think... Maybe you do on your podcast, but my education was not around that. It wasn't around, Stephanie, let's sit down and let's talk about what you ate and what's happening, and here's what you can try next time. And, and that's 
What I think would really benefit most people living with diabetes is having those advocates who will just sit down and say, what was your thought process? How did you attack it? What happens and what are you going to do next time? Because there's going to be a next time. It's not going away. It's probably coming this afternoon. And and I think that's a shortcoming of the education process that's probably based in how the medical like visits are even structured, you know, and so and plus you can't have those kind of conversations in the doctor's office. They they take too long. You can't you, you know, there's no time for it. And also like I mean, you just made a great point that you know, what works for one person doesn't work for the other one. But when you share a story, like when I share a story about what I did with Arden, I hope that people aren't listening and saying, okay, well, he took these 10 steps. I'll take these 10 steps. I hope they're hearing the bigger story, which is I tried, that I was aggressive, that I wasn't scared of the insulin, that I understand the timing, like the bigger stuff, because then you can apply those bigger ideas to you personally. And then that's how you'll find, like doing what I do is not going to work for you step by step. You have to have, to me, I think it's you have to take people who are maybe ahead of you a little bit, have a better idea about how things work and see their overall sensibility about things. And by the way, I'm sorry, Stephanie, just real quickly, this is a great spot for this. Nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making changes to your plan. There we go. Now, um, (laughs) you got to just get that out of the way, Stephanie. So, um, you know, so I think sometimes it's it's like I speak to a lot of people here, but I also speak to a, a fair amount of people privately. And in the end, once you've talked to them and you hear they have this desire to kind of hold their blood sugar in a different place, they have a desire to get a different A1C, they want to feel better, they want to live their lives in a certain way, and they have these feelings, but they don't really know what to do with them. The, the end result, the best advice you can almost give anyone who's in that position is you have to trust yourself more, like trust your gut. You, you know, like, like your doctor is giving you these very... I don't want to say rudimentary, but they're basic concepts that aren't specific to you. And then you start seeing where you think you should adjust them to you. And then you get scared to make these adjustments because, well, that's not what the doctor said. You, right. you know, and so you have to trust yourself. At some point, you just you just do. You know, you, you how many times do you fall down the steps before you say to yourself, I should probably hold on to the railing? You, you know, like, did you, are you waiting for the guy who's in charge of how people walk down the steps to tell you that? Or why don't you reach out on your own and grab the railing and say, hey, I've noticed something and uh, it hasn't been how I was taught, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a small adjustment to it anyway. And then once you get to that spot, then you're, then you're really moving. You're really on your way. And so do you think you're there? Like, do you make adjustments without your endocrinologist or do you wait to hear from them? Oh, I make adjustments. I was probably, I know I was counting carbs and bolusing with, according to my carbs, within one to two weeks after being out of the hospital versus like they had me on eight units for every meal or something like that. So I figured that out really quickly and started managing it on my own. And what I hear you talking about, Scott, when you talk about bigger picture, what I hear is is the mindset. So it's getting to that mindset of, okay, diabetes is kind of like a way of life. It is. It's not going away. It, it needs constant attention. And rather than judging myself or saying, oh, I have bad numbers, looking at it and saying, okay, this number isn't what I want. What do I want to do about it? How do I want to handle it? What do I know that works? So what I'm really working on is, is just the mindset. And staying more calm about it and um, knowing that I can manage it. And so it's having the confidence. It's, it's all my self-talk. It's, it's everything that I'm saying to myself about my ability to handle it, manage it, deal with it, and, and not judge myself and say you're bad and you can't do this. But it's staying on the other side of the equation. Does that make any sense? Not only does it make sense, I think you're a genius. I can't. I get. I'm. Yeah. I'm pleased that you I figured. Crack yeah, I'm pleased that you figured it out that quickly. Like honestly, it's it really is. I mean, it is the the crux of the entirety of of how to handle it day to day. Is you you really do need to not beat yourself up, understand the nuts and bolts a little bit. You know, trust yourself. You know, go after what you're trying to accomplish. Be, you know, like I said, life obviously is you can boil it down and just these are very, very trite sayings. And then it's it's apparently I guess a stitch in time does save nine. 
Although I don't know what that means. So, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, does anyone know? How about a bolus in time? It'd save you something. Yeah. And, and, you know, too, online, you'll see people ask this. This always like fascinates me. Uh, I, you know, I counted the carbs the way I was supposed to. I'm very confident that I've counted them correctly. I gave the amount of insulin the doctor told me to give. And now my kid's blood sugar is 300. It's been two hours. What do you think I should do? And I could just look at it and I think, Hey, give the kid more insulin. Like your blood, sugar, it's it's too hot. And you know they know that. You know that somewhere in there they realize that. You know if your blood sugar, I, I say it a lot. If your blood sugar is too high, you've mistimed or miscalculated your insulin. If your blood sugar is too low, you've mistimed or miscalculated your insulin. The whole entirety of that number is the insulin and the time and the, the amount and timing of it. So how does it that somebody looks at a three hundred blood sugar and says, I don't know what to do? And they're stuck because someone arbitrarily told them, you don't bolus again for three hours after you've bolused. But, but no one ever takes it back to its basic idea. What if this meal required 15 units of insulin and I only gave 12? Why would I not bolus again? And then someone will say, well, you can't stack insulin because it'll cause a low later. But the truth is you can stack insulin as long as it's the correct amount of insulin. You can't stack too much insulin. I can't give 10 units now for food that should have that required 15 and then an hour and a half later give 10 more. That's probably too much and will be that stacking will cause a low. But if I give 10 now, see my blood sugar shoot up to 150 and think, "Oh wow, usually this takes 13 units. I should throw these other three on real quickly." The honest fact is, you probably end up being a little high when that's over. Because you're now addressing a 150 blood sugar or a 200 blood sugar when, you know, initially when you made the bolus, you were lower. And and so CGM, again, I have to say, it, you know, it makes all that a lot easier. But you can test and avoid those things. You can also stop and think, last night is a great example. So my daughter is, we're 15 minutes from, from dinner. And she just starts fall like her blood sugar starts falling. And her glucose monitor, Dexcom says 71 straight down. And I said to my wife, I'm like, we're going to have to test. She's going to be lower than that. And so sure enough, we tested and her blood sugar was like 45. And so that doesn't happen very frequently. So I said, well, you know, that's going to be a whole juice box because a 45 test plus the plus the arrow, you know, maybe the CGM's catching up to the idea that she's actually 45 and maybe she's still 45 and falling. But let's do the whole juice box, drank the whole juice box and then, you know, her blood sugar stops, the arrow levels off, it kind of bangs up to 60 and sits there. She doesn't feel dizzy. And so we're just waiting for dinner. Now, I still am going to pre-bolus. Like, I can't not pre-bolus dinner just because she's 60. Like, still, I have to keep in my mind, insulin takes 10 to 15 minutes to work in my daughter. I can pre-bolus her at 60 as long as the food happens a little before. Plus, the juice at some point is going to start yanking her blood sugar the other way. If the juice was enough, right? And I was confident the juice was enough. So 10 minutes before, I said to my wife, I'm like, let's just pre-bolus, you know, two of the units from her actual uh, meal. And then we'll do the rest in a, in a couple more minutes when the food's coming out. And so we did that. And I looked at her plate and I was pretty comfortable that we chose a, a correct amount of insulin. And then it hit me. I said to my wife, I was like, did you include the juice box in the bolus? And she said, no, I didn't. And I said, oh, we have to bolus for the juice box, too. And so we did. And her blood sugar was like 90 an hour later. But that's an aggressive kind of bold way of thinking about it. And I I say to people all the time, like, you you know what you're doing when you have some crazy blood sugar. It's 35, it's 40, and you've eaten, you know, most of the left side of the refrigerator. And you have the nerve to bolus for most of it afterwards. Like, when you have that nerve, then you... Then you then you understand how that insulin works, I think. So, yeah, and it takes time to get to. I've talked it way does. too much, Stephanie. I'm sorry. And I think we we want certainty. So, I was thinking about the person who said, you know, my kid's blood sugar is 300. What do I do? We want that formula, and we want that certainty that if I do this, then this will happen because we're anxious. Right? Doesn't we're exist. worried? We're family members, and we want our loved one. So we want that formula and that certainty to ease that anxiety, whereas. I think what you're talking about is clarity. So clarity, 
if you tried something and a new experiment, then you get more clear about what works and what doesn't work. And and so now you're taking my thinking to a whole new level about can I consider clarity versus certainty? And if I aim for clarity and if I aim for successes versus something always X plus Y doesn't always equal Z. Like I could eat, I could get up at the same time every day, wear the exact same clothes, exact same thing, kind of like that movie Groundhog Day, right. and eat the exact same thing, and my numbers will be totally different. So it's it's just. And, and some people there, find there that no, frustrating. Exactly. But I just accept that that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've and just that said acceptance it, is the hardest part. See, you've just said it so much more articulately than I have. I'm now realizing that you should have a podcast and I should not. So <laughs> I, um, well, I well, you brought that out. Thank you. I'm going to send all this equipment to your house, and I'm getting out of this. So um, just just embarrass me by being much more thoughtful about it than I have. It's, I'm just joking, but that that was really that was beautiful what you said because it really is the difference. It's I mean, you made a ton of sense to me just now. Like you just have to. You have to not care that I did the same thing as I did yesterday and it didn't work. That instead of finding that frustrating, I guess it's the vacuuming in the in the stay at home dad situation. You just have to find it beautiful. Like that's just how it happens. So today we're gonna do this instead of that because this is what happened today. And and I don't know that life is any different than that really. Maybe diabetes perfectly mimics what it's like to be alive. You, you know? Yeah, I was thinking that too. I mean that's we're talking about diabetes, but you could really say that about anything. We all want that safety and security and that, that answer, but it doesn't really happen. So how do you stay in the messy middle? And when I get in that really messy middle part with diabetes where I'm really, you know, aggravated by it, some of the things that I do, I have my diabetes fight songs, so I go listen to music or I try to walk and calm myself down. Or You can just do what my wife does when she gets upset. What does he do? She yells at me. You should do that. Try that. It's, <laughs> she seems very relaxed afterwards. I have to be honest. So I'm just. Well, I have stuff. My um, it's when I was on pens. I'm on the pump now, but there were a few times when I chucked my pens across the room because I was pretty frustrated. <laughs> I've thrown my pump actually. <laughs> we didn't even uh, ask you. Like, so you're using a Dexcom? Is it a G5? Not yet because I have an Android phone. Oh, okay. So you have the four still. Yeah. And, yeah. So I'm waiting. What kind of pump do you have? I used the tandem T Slim. Okay. Why did you throw it? <laughs> if you don't mind me asking. Why did I throw I you know, I have I'm a little faint of heart from sticking the needle needle in. Okay. I admit that. I use a, a steel needle because I don't have a lot of real estate on my body mm-hmm. and the other kind kept kinking and falling out. So um I still can be a little faint of heart and I always I don't always push it in real solidly, so I don't always get it in right and so I was changing my inset, and I had a high blood sugar resulted from not getting the needle in well, and I just frustrated, so I chucked everything across so, the room. And, you know, yeah, it, it happens. And, I had yelled the, at my husband, too. Did, did the <laughs> T-Slim hold up? Well. Did the T-Slim hold up? Yeah. There's a free advertisement for you, T-Slim. Toss that thing yeah, across yeah, the room. Here, it might still work. Stuff across the room. And, and, you have, and you have tried yelling at your husband, because that seems very... I have man. asked my husband. He knows, like, when my blood sugar is low. Uh-huh. Because I get irritable, he'll be like, hmm, "Maybe you need to like go eat something and then and then come back." Yeah, I'm sure that goes <laughs> well, we'll when it. he makes a suggestion to you. I um, I that really is interesting because like you know my daughter uses an Omnipod, so it's a self inserter. So I don't even think about what you what you think about like as far as having to actually insert something into my like I you know we pinch her skin a little bit to make a little bump and then we push a button and it goes in by itself. And so mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's interesting that I just realized like there's a whole aspect of this that you think about that I don't think about. And yeah. I mean, fun. there's, there's just a lot of things to kind of go through. I think what you were talking about was experience, wisdom, trial and error, and, and just having confidence that, you know, you can do it. And there's some days are just going to be better than others. Yeah, sure. Hey, and listen, some days if you, I, I don't want to, I mean, we're getting up to the hour here, but I mean, I don't, I wouldn't want anybody to think that, you know, that I'm just like Zen constantly about it. I, I do my best, but you know, there are times when you bolus and something doesn't happen or you do the wrong thing. And my wife's like, geez, you can't, <laughs> she goes, she can't, you can't off the bleep this out later. I guess she goes, you can't say shit before everything that happens when you look at, at Arden's blood sugar. And I was like, but that's how I feel. I look down, I see the number and I think, 
and then I go take care of it. Um, but you know, not all days. Like some days, I just it it just I don't know. It rolls right off my back. But to your point, some days it doesn't. And I don't think there's anything wrong with throwing something or being upset or needing to go for a walk and beat up the sidewalk a little bit or whatever it is you have to do. Or put on that loud rock music and just go. Yes, yes. Or, and I have been known to every once in a while, and I can't say enough how valuable it is, just go into a room quietly and cry for a while. That does help, too. Um, it just, anything, any way you can kind of get it all out and start over again, I think, honestly, is is helpful. And, I mean, you can't, how do you stay ahead of a 24-7 disease? You know, you, you can't. You know, it's always, it's always moving, and you're not constantly... I mean, no matter how much we talk about, you know, you said 50 or 60 decisions a day. That's a lot. It's a, it's a crazy amount. And still, it's not nearly as much as, uh, as many decisions as the diabetes is making. So, you know, you can't really keep after it like that. That's why these uh, artificial pancreas uh, algorithms are so exciting. And, uh, oh, I can't wait. I would love to, to do that. Like have the implant in my stomach. Oh, you like the Vitaslide idea? The uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good one too. Yeah, there's, there's, a, I think a couple of really cool things that are, hopefully, our lifetime kind of stuff. But I mean, I think that most uh, immediately insulin pump companies um, and their algorithms to kind of work hand in hand between the, the the glucose monitor and the and the pump to make decisions for you, kind of autonomously uh, or more autonomously, is uh, I think that's the first exciting thing and then i love that idea of those implantable stem cells that just sort of act like a little like a little temporary pancreas in there that i think is uh i think that's the closest thing to you know uh, technological free you know living that that's like seems like it's in in our lifetime kind of an idea you know what i mean like i think that's exciting so all right, Stephanie, this has been an hour. You Well, thank you. It flew by. I appreciate it. No. Thanks for the opportunity. No, no, no. I appreciate it, too. And I, I, I spoke, I talked a little too much today. I know that. But you were really inspiring me a couple of times. So I hope people understand that the uh, the podcast is not scripted. So you made me think of some things. And, you know, then I said some things I hope that kind of spurred you on. I, I hope that's how the conversation, it felt like it went like that. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go back and write down clarity, not certainty. And and focus on that instead of always having to have it turn out perfectly. I'll tell you what. So thank you. How about if I name this episode Clarity Not Certainty too? There you go. Right. That works. Right. I'm going to um, thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thanks, Scott. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely fantastic. Let's also thank our sponsors, Omnipod and Dexcom. Go to Dexcom.com forward slash juicebox or myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. And that's it. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week.